Castle, episode number 38, for January 6, 2009. In the House of the Seven Librarians by Ellen Clodges. Welcome to Podcastle. I'm Ann Leckie. One of the few things that I regret about where I live right now is that I'm not in walking distance of a library. When I was a kid, I spent nearly every Saturday afternoon at the library browsing the shelves and stocking up on the week's reading material. That was where I first found Lloyd Alexander and Andre Norton and John Christopher and Edward Eager. And when I was just a little older, Patricia McKillop and Mary Stewart. Years later, that same library took a lot of books off their shelves and put them out in the lobby for sale, 20 cents apiece. Maybe they had a good reason. Maybe they were buying lots more exciting stories and needed the room. Maybe the books they were getting rid of were outdated or rarely, if ever, were checked out. But it made me sad to see Andre Norton's The Zero Stone on the stack, the very copy that I had checked out myself more than once. Some child would come into this library and The Zero Stone would not be there for her to find. There are lots of new books for kids, especially right now, and lots of them are excellent, but sometimes I think of that abandoned book and I wonder if kids are still reading Lloyd Alexander or Susan Cooper or Edward Eager. By the way, that copy of The Zero Stone is on a shelf in my office right now. By then I already had my own collection of Andre Norton titles, including that one, but I just couldn't let it sit there and maybe be passed over and thrown away. Today's story is In the House of the Seven Librarians by Ellen Clodges. It first appeared in the anthology Firebirds Rising, edited by Sharon November. Ms. Clodges' short fiction has appeared in science fiction and fantasy anthologies and magazines both online and in print, including the magazine of fantasy and science fiction, Black Gate, and Firebirds Rising. Her story, Basement Magic, won the Best Novelette Nebula Award in 2005. Several of her other stories have been on the final ballot for the Nebula and Hugo Awards and have been reprinted in various years' best volumes. She was a finalist for the John W. Campbell Award and is a graduate of the Clarion South Writing Workshop. You can find her on the web at www.ellenclodges.com. In the House of the Seven Librarians is read by Podcastle's editor, Rachel Swirsky. In the House of the Seven Librarians by Ellen Clages. Once upon a time, the Carnegie Library sat on a wooded bluff on the east side of town, red brick and fieldstone, with turrets and broad windows facing the trees. Inside, green glass-shaded lamps cast warm yellow light onto oak tables ringed with spindle-backed chairs. Books filled the dark shelves that stretched high up toward the pressed tin ceiling. The floors were wood, except in the foyer, where they were pale beige marble. The loudest sounds were the ticking of the clock and the quiet, rhythmic thwack of a rubber stamp on a pasteboard card. It was a cozy, orderly place. Through twelve presidents and two world wars, the elms and maples grew tall outside the deep bay windows. Children leaped from Peter Pan to Oliver Twist and off to college, replaced at story hour by their younger brothers, cousins, and daughters. Then the library board, men in suits, serious men, men of money, met and cast their votes for progress. A new library, with fluorescent lights, much better for the children's eyes. Picture windows, automated systems, 
ergonomic plastic chairs. The town approved the levy, and the new library was built across town, convenient to the community center and the mall. Some books were boxed and trundled down Broad Street. Many others stamped discard and left where they were for a book sale in the fall. Interns from the university used the latest technology to transfer the cumbersome old card file and all the records onto floppy disks and microfiche. Progress, progress, progress. The Ralph P. Mossberger Library, named after the local philanthropist and car dealer who had written the largest check, opened on a drizzly morning in late April. Everyone attended the ribbon-cutting ceremony and stayed for the speeches, because there would be cake after. Everyone, that is, except the seven librarians from the Carnegie Library on the bluff across town. Quietly, without a fuss, they were librarians, after all. While the town looked toward the future, they bought supplies, loose tea and English biscuits, packets of bird's pudding, and cans of beef barley soup. They rearranged some of the shelves, brought in a few comfortable armchairs, nice china and teapot, a couch, towels for the shower, and some small braided rugs. Then they locked the door behind them. Each morning they woke and went about their chores. They shelved and stamped and cataloged, and in the evenings every night they read by lamplight. Perhaps for a while some citizens remembered the old library, with the warm nostalgia of a favorite childhood toy that had disappeared one summer, never seen again. Others assumed it had been torn down ages ago. And so a year went by, then two, or perhaps a great many more. Inside, time had ceased to matter. Grass and brambles grew thick and tall around the fieldstone steps, and trees arched overhead as the forest folded itself around them like a cloak. Inside, the seven librarians lived, quiet and content, until the day they found the baby. Librarians are guardians of books. They guide others along their paths, offering keys to help unlock the doors of knowledge. But these seven had become a closed circle, no one to guide, no new minds to open onto worlds of possibility. They kept themselves busy, tidying orderly shelves and mending barely frayed bindings with stiff netting and glue, and began to bicker. Ruth and Edith had been up half the night, arguing about whether or not subway tokens, of which there were half a dozen in the lost and found box, could be used to cast the I Ching. And so Blythe was on the stepstool in the 299s, reshelving the volume of hexagrams, when she heard the knock. Odd, she thought. It's been some time since we had visitors. She tugged futilely at her shapeless cardigan as she clambered off the stool and trotted to the front door, where she stopped abruptly, her hand to her mouth in surprise. A wicker basket, its contents covered with a red-checked cloth as if for a picnic, lay in the wooden box beneath the book-return chute. A small cream-colored envelope poked out from one side. "'How nice!' Blythe said aloud, clapping her hands. She thought of fried chicken and potato salad, of which she was awfully fond, a mason jar of lemonade, perhaps, even a cherry pie. She lifted the basket by its round arched handle, heavy for a picnic, but then there were seven of them. 
although Olive ate just like a bird these days. She turned and set it on top of the circulation desk, pulling the envelope free. "'What's that?' Marion asked, her lips in their accustomed moo of displeasure, as if the basket were an agent of chaos, existing solely to disrupt the tidy array of rubber stamps and file boxes that were her domain. "'A present,' said Blythe. "'I think it might be lunch.' Marion frowned. "'For you?' "'I don't know yet. There's a note.' Blythe held up the envelope and peered at it. "'No,' she said. It's addressed to the librarians, overdue books department. Well, that would be me, Marion said curtly. She was the youngest and wore trouser suits with silk t-shirts. She had once been blonde. She reached across the counter, plucked the envelope from Blythe's plump fingers, and sliced it open with a filigreed brass stiletto. Hm, she said after she'd scanned the contents. It is lunch, isn't it? asked Blythe. Hardly. Marion began to read aloud. This is overdue. Quite a bit, I'm afraid. I apologize. We moved to Topeka when I was very small, and Mother accidentally packed it up with the linens. I have travelled a long way to return it, and I know the fine must be large, but I have no money. As it is a book of fairy tales, I thought payment of a first-born child would be acceptable. I have always loved the library— I'm sure she'll be happy there. Blythe lifted the edge of the cloth. Oh, my stars! A baby girl with a shock of wire-stiff black hair stared up at her, green eyes wide and curious. She was contentedly chewing on the corner of a blue book half as big as she was. Fairy tales of the Brothers Grimm. The Rackham illustrations, Blythe said as she eased the book away from the baby. That's a lovely addition. "'But when was it checked out?' Marion demanded. Blythe opened the cover and pulled the ruled card from the inside pocket. "'October 17th, 1938,' she said, shaking her head. "'Goodness! At two cents a day, that's—' She shook her head again. Blythe had never been good with figures. They made a crib for her in the bottom drawer of a file cabinet, displacing acquisition orders, zoning permits, and the instructions for the mimeograph, which they rarely used. Ruth consulted Dr. Spock. Edith read Piaget. The two of them peered from text to infant and back again for a good long while before deciding that she was probably about nine months old. They sighed. Too young to read. So they fed her cream and let her gum on biscuits, and each of the seven cooed and clucked and tickled her pink toes when they thought the others weren't looking. Harriet had been the oldest of nine girls, and she knew more about babies than she really cared to. She washed and changed the diapers that had been tucked into the basket, and read Goodnight Moon, and Pat the Bunny, to the little girl, whom she called Polly, short for Polyhymnia, the muse of oratory and sacred song. Blythe called her Bitsy, and little precious. Marion called her the foundling, or that child you took in. But she did her share of cooing and clucking just the same. When the child began to walk, Dorothy blocked the staircase with stacks of Comptons, which she felt was an inferior encyclopedia, and let her pull herself up on the bottom drawers of the card catalogue. Anyone looking up zithers or zippers, see slide fasteners, soon found many of the cards fused together with grape jam. 
When she began to talk, they made a little bed nook next to the fireplace in the children's room. It was high time for Olive to begin the child's education. Olive had been the children's librarian since before recorded time, or so it seemed. No one knew how old she was, but she vaguely remembered waving to President Coolidge. She still had all of her marbles, though every one of them was a bit odd and rolled asymmetrically. She slept on a daybed behind a reference shelf that held my first encyclopedia and the Wonder Book of Trees, among others. Across the room, the child's first big girl bed was yellow, with decals of a fairy and a horse on the headboard, and a rocket ship at the foot, because they weren't sure about her preferences. At the beginning of her career, Olive had been an ordinary-sized librarian, but by the time she began the child's lessons, she was not much taller than her toddler's charge, not from osteoporosis or dowager's hump or other old lady maladies, but because she had tired of stooping over tiny chairs and bending to knee-high shelves. She had been a grown-up for so long that when the library closed, she had decided it was time to grow down again, and was finding that much more comfortable. She had a remarkably cozy lap for a woman her size. The child quickly learned her alphabet, all the shapes and colors, the names of zoo animals, and fourteen different kind of dinosaurs, all of whom were dead. By the time she was four, or thereabouts, she could sound out the letters for simple words, cup, and lamp, and stairs. And that's how she came to name herself. Olive had fallen asleep over Make Way for Ducklings, and all the other librarians were busy somewhere else. The child was bored. She tiptoed out of the children's room, hugging the shadows of the walls and shelves, crawling by the base of the circulation desk so that Marion couldn't see her, and made her way to the alcove that held the card catalog, the heart of the library, her favorite, most forbidden place to play. Usually she crawled underneath and tucked herself into the corner formed of oak cabinet, marble floor, and plaster walls. It was a fine place to play hide-and-seek, even if it was mostly just hide. The corner was a cave, a bunk on a pirate ship, a cupboard in a magic wardrobe. But that afternoon she looked at the white cards on the fronts of the drawers and her eyes widened in recognition. Letters! in her very own alphabet. Did they spell words? Maybe the drawers were full of words. A huge wooden box of words. The idea almost made her dizzy. She walked to the other end of the cabinet and looked up, tilting her neck back until it crackled. Four drawers from top to bottom. Five drawers cross. She sighed. She was only tall enough to reach the bottom row of drawers. She traced a gentle finger around the little brass frames, then very carefully pulled out the white cards inside and laid them on the floor in a neat row. D-I-N-S-X-Y-Z. She squatted over them, her tongue sticking out of the corner of her mouth in concentration and tried to read. Sound it out. She could almost hear Olive's voice, soft and patient. She took a deep breath. Da ins And then she stopped, because the last card had too many letters, and she didn't know any words that had X's in them. Well, xylophone. But the X was in the front, and that wasn't the same. She tried anyway. Da-in-zi. 
and frowned. She squatted lower, so low that she could feel the marble under her cotton pants, and put her hand on top of the last card. One finger covered the X, and her pinky covered the Z, another letter that was useless for spelling ordinary things. That left Y. Y, at the end, was good. Funny. Happy. Da in see, she said slowly. Din see. That felt very good to say. Hard and soft sounds and hissing s's mixing in her mouth, so she said it again, louder, which made her laugh. So she said it again, very loud. Din see. There is nothing quite like a loud voice in a library to get a lot of attention very fast. Within a minute, all seven of the librarians stood in the doorway of the alcove. What on earth? said Harriet. Now what have you? said Marion. What have you spelled, dear? asked Olive in her soft little voice. I made it myself, the girl replied. Just gibberish, murmured Edith, though not unkindly. It doesn't mean a thing. The child shook her head. Does so? Olive, she said, pointing to Olive. Dorothy. Edith. Harriet. Bythe. Ruth. She paused and rolled her eyes. Marion, she added a little less cheerfully. Then she pointed to herself. And Dinsey. Oh, now Polly, said Harriet. Dinsey, said Dinsey. Bitsy? Blythe tried hopefully. Dinsey, said Dinsey. And that was that. At three every afternoon, Dinsey and Olive made a two-person circle on the braided rug in front of the bay window and had story time. Sometimes Olive read aloud from Beezus and Ramona and Half Magic, and sometimes Dinsey read to Olive The King's Stilts and In the Night Kitchen and Winnie the Pooh. Dinsey liked that one especially, and took it to bed with her so many times that Edith had to repair the binding. Twice. That was when Dinsey first wished upon the library. A note about the library. Knowledge is not static. Information must flow in, in order to live. Every so often, one of the librarians would discover a new edition. Harry Potter and the Sorcerer's Stone appeared one rainy afternoon. "'rowling shelled neatly between Rogers and Saint-Exupéry, "'as if it had always been there. "'Blythe found a book of Thich Nhat Hanh's writings "'in the 294s one day, while she was dusting, "'and Feynman's lectures on physics "'showed up on Dorothy's shelving cart "'after she'd gone to make a cup of tea. "'It didn't happen often. "'The library was selective about what it chose to add, "'rejecting flash-in-the-pan bestsellers, Sifting for the long haul, including those voices that would stand the test of time next to Dickens and Tolkien, Wolf and Gould. The librarians took care of the books, and the library watched over them in return. It occasionally left treats, a bowl of ripe tangerines on the formica counter of the common room, a gold foil box of chocolate creams, seven small stemmed glasses of sherry on the table at tea time. Their biscuit tin remained full, the cream in the Wedgwood jug stayed fresh, and the ink pad didn't dry out. Even the little pencils stayed needle-sharp, never whittling down to finger-cramping nubs. Some days the library even hid Dinsey, when she had made a mess and didn't want to be found, or when one of the librarians was in a dark mood. It rearranged itself, just a bit, 
so that in her wanderings she would find a new alcove or cubbyhole, and once a secret passage that led to a previously unknown balcony overlooking the reading room. When she went back a week later, she found only blank wall. And so it was, one night when she was six-ish, that Dinsey first asked the library for a boon. Lying in her tiny yellow bed, the fraying poo under her pillow, she wished for a bear to cuddle. Books were small comfort once lights were out, and their hard, sharp covers made them awkward companions under the covers. She lay with one arm crooked around a soft, imaginary bear, and wished and wished until her eyelids fluttered into sleep. The next morning, while they were all having tea and toast with jam, Blythe came into the common room with a quizzical look on her face and her hands behind her back. "'The strangest thing,' she said. "'On my way up here I glanced over at the lost and found. "'Couldn't tell you why, nothing lost in ages, but this must have caught my eye.' She held out a small brown bear, one shoe-button eye missing, bits of fur gone from its belly, as if it had been loved almost to pieces. "'It seems to be yours,' she said with a smile, turning up one padded foot, where Dinsey was written in faded laundry-marker black. Dinsey wrapped her whole self around the cotton-stuffed body and skipped for the rest of the morning. Later, after Olive gave her a snack, Coco and a Lorna Dune, Dinsey cupped her hand and blew a kiss to the oak woodwork. "'Thank you,' she whispered, and put half her cookie into a crack between two tiles on the children's room fireplace when Olive wasn't looking. Dinsey and Olive had a lovely time. One week they were pirates raiding the common room for booty and raisins. The next they were princesses trapped in a turret with at the back of the north wind, and the week after that they were knights in shining armor rescuing damsels in distress, a game Dinsey especially savored because it annoyed Marion to be rescued. But the year she turned seven and a half, Dinsey stopped reading stories, quite abruptly, on an afternoon that Olive had said later really felt like a Thursday. Stories are for babies, Dinsey said. I want to read about real people. Olive smiled a sad smile and pointed toward the far wall, because Dinsey was not the first child to make that same pronouncement and she had known the phase would come. After that, Dinsey devoured biographies, starting with the orange ones, the childhoods of famous Americans, Thomas Edison, young inventor. She worked her way from Abigail Adams to John Peter Zanger, all along the west side of the children's room, until one day she went around the corner where science and history began. She stood in the doorway, looking at the rows of grown-up books, when she felt Olive's hand on her shoulder. "'Do you think maybe it's time to move across the hall?' Olive asked softly. Dinsey bit her lip, then nodded. "'I can come back to visit, can't I, when I want to read stories again?' "'For as long as you like, dear. Any time at all.' So Dorothy came and gathered up the bear and the pillow and the yellow toothbrush. Dinsey kissed Olive on her papery cheek and, holding Blythe's hand, moved across the hall to the room where all the books had numbers. Blythe was plump and freckled and frizzled. She always looked a little flushed, as if she had just that moment dropped what she was doing to rush over and greet you. She wore rumpled tweed skirts and a shapeless cardigan whose original color was impossible to guess. 
She had bright, dark eyes like a spaniel's, which Dinsey thought was appropriate, because Blythe lived to fetch books. She wore a locket with a small rotogravure picture of Melville Dewey, and kept a variety of sweets, sour balls, and mints and necco wafers in her desk drawer. Dinsey had always liked her. She was not as sure about Dorothy. Over her desk, Dorothy had a small framed medal on a royal blue ribbon, one for excellence in classification studies. She could operate the ancient black Remington typewriter with brisk efficiency, and even on occasion, coax chalky gray prints out of the wheezing old copy machine. She was a tall, raw-boned woman with steely blue eyes, good posture, and even better penmanship. Dinsey was a little frightened of her at first, because she seemed so stern, and because she looked like magazine pictures of the Wicked Witch of the West, or at least like Margaret Hamilton. But that didn't last long. "'You should be very careful not to slip on the floor in there,' Dorothy said on their first meeting. "'Do you know why?' Dinsey shook her head. "'Because you're in the non-friction room now,' Dorothy's angular face cracked into a wide grin." Dinsey groaned. Okay, she said, after a minute. How do you file marshmallows? Dorothy cocked her head. Shoot. By the gooey decimal system. Dinsey heard Blythe tisk-tisk, but Dorothy laughed out loud, and from then on, they were fast friends. The three of them used the large sunny room as an arena for endless games of I spy and twenty questions as Dinsey learned her way around the shelves. In the evenings after supper, they played Authors and Scrabble, and once tried to keep a running rummy score in base eight. Dinsey sat at the court of Napoleon, roamed the jungles near Timbuktu, and was a frequent guest at the round table. She knew all the kings of England and the difference between a pergola and a folly. She knew the names of a hundred and twelve breeds of sheep, and loved to say, Barbados Blackbelly, over and over, although it was difficult to work into conversation. When she affectionately, if misguidedly, referred to Blythe as a Persian fat-rumped, she was sent to bed without supper. A note about time. Time had become quite flexible in the library. This is true of most places with interesting books. Sit down to read for twenty minutes and suddenly it's dark with no clue as to where the hours have gone. As a consequence, no one was really sure about the day of the week, and there was constant disagreement about the month and the year. As the keeper of the date stamp at the front desk, Marion was the arbiter of such things, but she often had a cocktail after dinner, and many mornings she couldn't recall if she'd already turned the little wheel, or how often it had slipped her mind, so she frequently set it a day or two ahead, or back three, just to make up. One afternoon, on a visit to Olive in the children's room, Dinsey looked up from the little town on the prairie and said, "'When's my birthday?' Olive thought for a moment. Because of the irregularities of time, holidays were celebrated a bit haphazardly. "'I'm not sure, dear. Why do you ask?' "'Laura's going to a birthday party in this book,' she said, holding it up. "'And it's fun. So I thought maybe I could have one.' I think that would be lovely, Olive agreed. We'll talk to the others at supper. Your birthday, said Harriet, as she set the table a few hours later. Let me see. 
You arrived in April, according to Marion's stamp, and you were about nine months old, so she pursed her lips as she ticked off the months. You must have been born in July. But when's my birthday? asked Dinsey impatiently. Not sure, said Edith as she ladled out the soup. No way to tell, Olive agreed. How does July 5th sound? offered Blythe, as if it were a point of order to be voted on. Blythe counted best by fives. Fourth, said Dorothy, Independence Day. Easy to remember? Dinsey shrugged. Okay. It hadn't seemed so complicated in the little house book. When is that? Is it soon? Probably, Ruth nodded. A few weeks later, the librarians threw her a birthday party. Harriet baked spice cake with pink frosting and wrote Dinsey on top in red licorice laces, dotting the eye with a lemon drop, which was rather stale. The others gave her gifts, which were thoughtful and mostly handmade. A set of Dewey Decimal flashcards from Blythe. A book of logic puzzles, stamped discard more than a dozen times so Dinsey could write in it, from Dorothy. A lumpy orange and green cardigan Ruth had knitted for her. A snow globe from the 1939 World's Fair from Olive. A flashlight from Edith, so that Dinsey could find her way around at night and not knock over the wastebasket again. A set of paper finger puppets, made from blank card pockets, hand-painted by Marion. They were literary figures, of course, all of them necessarily stout and squarish, Nero Wolfe and Friar Tuck, Santa Claus and Gertrude Stein. But her favorite gift was the second boon she'd wished from the library, a box of crayons. She'd grown very tired of drawing gray pictures with the little pencils. It had produced Crayola crayons in the familiar yellow and green box labeled Library Pack. Inside were the colors of Dinsey's world, reference maroon, brown leather, peplum beige, reader's guide green, world book red, card catalog cream, date stamp purple, and palatino black. It was a very special birthday, that 4th of July, although Dinsey wondered about Marion's calculations. As Harriet cut the first piece of cake that evening, she remarked that it was snowing rather heavily outside, which everyone agreed was lovely, but quite unusual for that time of year. Dinsey soon learned all the planets and many of their moons. She referred to herself as Umbriel for an entire month. She puffed up her cheeks and blew onto stacks of scrap paper. Sirocco, she'd whisper, Chinook, Mistral, Willy Willy, and rated her attempts on the Beaufort scale. Dorothy put a halt to it after Hurricane Dinsey reshuffled a rather elaborate game of patience. She dipped into fractals here, double dactyls there. When she tired of a subject or found it didn't suit her, Blythe or Dorothy would smile and proffer the hat. It was a deep green felt hat that held slips of paper numbered 001-9999. Dinsey would scrunch her eyes closed, pick one, and like a scavenger hunt, spend the morning or the next three weeks at the shelves indicated. Pangolins lived at 599.31 and pancakes at 641. Pencils were at 674, but pens were a shelf away at 681, and ink was across the aisle at 667. Dinsey thought that was stupid because he had to use them together. 
Pluto the planet was at 523, but Pluto the Disney dog was at 791.453 near rock and roll and kazoos. It was all very useful information, but in Dinsey's opinion, things could be a little too organized. The first time she straightened up the common room without anyone asking, she was very pleased with herself. She had lined up everyone's teacup in a neat row on the shelf, with all the handles curving the same way, and arranged the spices in the little wooden rack, anise, bay leaves, chives, dillweed, peppercorns, salt, sesame seeds, sugar. Look, she said when Blythe came in to refresh her tea, order out of chaos. It was one of Blythe's favorite mottos. Blythe smiled and looked at the spice rack. Then her smile faded, and she shook her head. "'Is something wrong?' Dinsey asked. She had hoped for a compliment. "'Well, you used the alphabet,' Blythe said, sighing. "'I suppose it's not your fault. You were with Olive for a good many years. But you're a big girl now. You should learn the proper order.' She picked up the salt container. "'We'll start with salt.' She wrote the word on the little chalkboard hanging by the icebox, followed by the number 553.632. Dinsey thought for a moment. Earth sciences. Exactly, Blythe beamed, because salt is a mineral. But now chives. Chives are a garden crop, so there Dinsey bit her lip in concentration. 630-something. Very good. Blythe smiled again and chalked chives, 635.26, on the board. So you see, chives should always be shelved after salt, dear. Blythe turned and began to rearrange the eight ceramic jars. Behind her back, Dinsey silently rolled her eyes. Edith appeared in the doorway. Not again, she said. No wonder I can't find a thing in this kitchen. Blythe, I've told you. Bayleaf comes first. QK49, she had worked at a university when she was younger. Library of Congress, my fanny, said Blythe, not quite under her breath. We're not that kind of library. It's no excuse for imprecision, Edith replied. They each grabbed a jar and stared at each other. Dinsey tiptoed away and hid in the 814s where she read Jabberwocky, until the coast was clear. But the kitchen remained a taxonomic battleground. At least once a week, Dinsey was amused by the indignant spluttering of someone who had just spooned dillweed and not sugar into a cup of Earl Grey tea. Once she knew her way around, Dinsey was free to roam the library as she chose. Anywhere? she asked Blythe. Anywhere you like, my sweet, except the stacks. You're not quite old enough for the stacks. Dinsey frowned. I am so, she muttered. But the stacks were locked and there wasn't much she could do. Some days she sat with Olive in the children's room revisiting old friends or explored the maze of the main room. Other days she spent in the reference room where Ruth and Harriet guarded the big important books that no one could ever, ever check out, not even when the library had been open. Ruth and Harriet were like a set of salt-and-pepper shakers from two different yard sales. Harriet had faded orange hair and a sharp, kind face. Small and pinched and pointed, a decade or two away from wizened. She had violet eyes and a mischievous, conspiratorial smile, and wore rimless octagonal glasses like stop signs. Dinsey had never seen an actual stop sign, but she'd looked at pictures. Ruth was Chinese. 
She wore wool jumpers in neon plaids and had cat's eye glasses on a beaded chain around her neck. She never put them all the way on, just lifted them to her eyes and peered through them without opening the bows. Life is a treasure hunt, said Harriet. Knowledge is power, said Ruth. Knowing where to look is half the battle. Half the fun, added Harriet. Ruth almost never got the last word. They introduced Dinsey to dictionaries and almanacs, encyclopedias and compendiums. They had been native guides through the country of the dry tomes for many years, but they agreed that Dinsey delved unusually deep. "'Would you like to take a break, love?' Ruth asked one afternoon. "'It's nearly time for tea.' "'I am fatigued,' Dinsey replied, looking up from Roger. "'Fagged out, weary, a bit spent. Tea would be pleasant.' Agreeable. I'll put the kettle on, sighed Ruth. Dinsey read Bartlett's as if it was a catalogue of conversations, spouting lines from Tennyson, Mark Twain, and Dale Carnegie, until even Harriet put her hands over her ears and began to hum Stairway to Heaven. One or two evenings a month, usually after Blythe remarked, Well, she's a spirited girl, for the third time. They all took a night off for library business. Olive or Dorothy would tuck Dinsey in early and read from one of her favorites, while Ruth made her a bedtime treat, a cup of spiced tea that tasted a little like cherries and a little like varnish, and which Dinsey somehow never remembered finishing. A list, written in diverse hands, tacked to the wall of the common room. Ten things to remember when you live in a library. One. We do not play shuffleboard on the reading room table. Two. Books should not have dog's ears. Bookmarks make lovely presents. Three. Do not write in books, even in pencil. Puzzle collections and connect the dots are books. Four. The shelving cart is not a footlocker. Five, library paste is not food. Marginal note in child's hand. True, it tastes like cream of wrong soup. Six, do not use the date stamp to mark your banana. Seven, shelves are not monkey bars. Eight, do not play 982 pickup with the P to Q drawer or any other. Nine, the dumb waiter is only for books. It is not a carnival ride. 10. Do not drop volumes of the Britannica off the stairs to hear the echo. They were an odd but contented family. There were rules, to be sure, but Dinsey never lacked for attention. With seven mothers, there was always someone to talk with, a hanky for tears, a lap, or a shoulder to share a story. Most evenings, when Dorothy had made a fire in the reading room and the wooden shelves gleamed in the flickering light, they would all sit in companionable silence. Ruth knitted, Harriet muttered over an acrostic, Edith stirred the cocoa so it wouldn't get a skin. Dinsey sat on the rug, her back against the knees of whomever was her favorite that week, and felt safe and warm and loved. God's in his heaven, all is right with the world, Blythe would say. But as she watched the moon peep in and out of the clouds through the leaded glass panes of the tall windows, Dinsey often wondered what it would be like to see the whole sky all around her.
First Olive and then Dorothy had been in charge of Dinsey's thick, dark hair, trimming it with mending shears every few weeks when it began to obscure her eyes. But a few years into her second decade at the library, Dinsey began cutting it herself, leaving it as wild and spiky as the brambles outside the front door. This was not the only change. "'We haven't seen her at breakfast in weeks,' Harriet said as she buttered a scone one morning. "'Months! And all she reads is Salinger or Sylvia Plath,' complained Dorothy. "'I wouldn't mind so much, but she just leaves them on the table for me to reshelve.' "'It's not as bad as what she did to Olive,' Marion said. "'The golden compass appeared last week, and she thought Dinsey would enjoy it. "'But not only did she turn up her nose, she had the gall to say to Olive, "'Leave me alone. I can find my own books.' "'Poor Olive was beside herself. "'She used to be such a sweet child,' Blythe sighed. "'What are we going to do?' "'Now, now, she's just at that age,' Edith said calmly. "'She's not really a child any more. "'She needs some privacy.' and some responsibility. I have an idea. And so it was that Dinsey got her own room, with a door that shut, in a corner of the second floor. It had been a tiny cubbyhole of an office, but it had a set of slender curved stairs, wrought iron worked with lilies and twigs, which led up to the turret between the red tiled eaves. The round tower was just wide enough for Dinsey's bed, with windows all around. There had once been a view of the town, but now trees and ivy allowed only jigsaw puzzle-shaped puddles of light to dapple the wooden floor. At night the puddles were luminous blue splotches of moonlight that hinted of magic beyond reach. On the desk in the room below, centered in a pool of yellow lamplight, Edith had left a note. Come visit me. There's mending to be done. And a worn brass key on a wooden paddle stenciled with the single word, Stacks. The stacks were in the basement, behind a locked gate at the foot of the metal spiral staircase that descended from the six hundreds. They had always reminded Dinsey of the steps down to the dungeon in the king's stilts. Darkness below hinted at danger, but adventure. Terra incognita. Dinsey didn't use her key the first day or the second. Mending? Boring. But the afternoon of the third day, she ventured down the spiral stairs— she had been as far as the gate before many times because it was forbidden to peer through the metal mesh at the dimly lighted shelves and imagine what treasures might be hidden there. She had thought that the stacks would be damp and cold, strewn with odd bits of discarded library flotsam. Instead, they were cool and dry, and smelled very different from upstairs. Dustier, with hints of mold and the tang of vintage leather, an undertone of vinegar stored in an old shoe. Unlike the main floor, with its polished wood and airy high ceilings, the stacks were a low, cramped warren of gunmetal gray shelves that ran floor to ceiling in narrow aisles. Seven levels twisted behind the west wall of the library, like a secret labyrinth that stretched from below the ground to up under the eaves of the roof. The floor and steps were translucent glass brick, and the six-foot ceilings strung with pipes and ducts were lit by single caged bulbs, two to an aisle. It was a windowless fortress of books. Upstairs the shelves were mosaics of all colors and sizes, but the stacks were filled with geometric monochrome blocks of subdued colors. Eight dozen forest-green browned volumes of Ladies' Home Journal filled five rows of shelves, followed by an equally large block of identical dark-red lifes. Dinsey felt like she was in another world, 
She was not lost, but for one of the first times in her life she was not easily found, and that suited her. She could sit invisible, and listen to the sounds of the library life going on around her. From level three she could hear Ruth humming in the reference room on the other side of the wall. Four feet away, and it felt like miles. She wandered and browsed for a month before she presented herself at Edith's office. A frosted glass pane in the dark wood door said, Mending Room, in chipping gold letters. The door was open a few inches, and Dinsey could see a long workbench strewn with sewn folios and bits of leather bindings, spools of thread, and bottles of thick beige glue. "'I gather you're finding your way around,' Edith said, without turning her chair. "'I haven't had to send out a search party.' "'Pretty much,' Dinsey replied. "'I've been reading old magazines.' She flopped into a chair to the left of the door. "'One of my favorite things,' Edith agreed. "'It's like time travel.' Edith was a tall, solid woman, with long graying hair that she wove into elaborate buns and twisted braids, secured with number two pencils and a single tortoiseshell comb. She wore blue jeans and vests in brightly muted colors, pale teal and lavender and dusky rose, with a strand of lapis lazuli beads cut in rough ovals. Edith repaired damaged books, a job that was less demanding now that nothing left the building. But some of the bound volumes of journals and abstracts and magazines went back as far as 1870, and their leather bindings were crumbling into dust. The first year, Dinsey's job was to go through the aisles level by level and find the volumes that needed the most help. Edith gave her a clipboard and told her to check in now and then. Dinsey learned how to take apart old books and put them back together again. Her first mending project was the tattered 1877 volume of American Naturalist, with its articles on educated fleas and barnacles and the cricket as thermometer. She sewed pages into signatures, trimmed leather, and marbleized paper. Edith let her make whatever she wanted out of the scraps, and that year Dinsey gave everyone miniature replicas of their favorite volumes for Christmas. She liked the craft, liked doing something with her hands. It took patience and concentration, and that was oddly soothing. After supper, she and Edith often sat and talked for hours late into the night, mugs of cocoa on their workbenches, the rest of the library dark and silent above them. "'What's it like outside?' Dinsey asked one night while she was waiting for some glue to dry. Edith was silent for a long time, long enough that Dinsey wondered if she'd spoken too softly, and was about to repeat the question, when Edith replied, "'Chaos.' That was not anything Dinsey had expected. What do you mean? It's noisy and crowded. Everything's always changing and not in any way you can predict. That sounds kind of exciting, said Dinsey. Hmm. Edith thought for a moment. Yes, I suppose it could be. Dinsey mulled that over and fiddled with a scrap of leather, twisting it in her fingers before she spoke again. Do you ever miss it? Edith turned on her stool and looked at Dinsey. Not often, she said. Not often as I'd thought. But then I'm awfully fond of order. Fonder than most, I suppose. This is a better fit. Dinsey nodded and sipped her cocoa. A few months later, she asked the library for a third and final boon.
The evening that everything changed, Dinsey sat in the armchair in her room, reading Trollope's Can You Forgive Her for the third time, imagining what it would be like to talk to Glencora when a tentative knock sounded at the door. Dinsey? Dinsey, said a tiny, familiar voice. It's Olive, dear. Dinsey slid her read bookmark into chapter 14 and closed the book. It's open, she called. Olive padded in, wearing a red flannel robe, her feet in worn carpet slippers. Dinsey expected her to proffer a book, but instead Olive said, I'd like you to come with me, dear. Her blue eyes shone with excitement. What for? They had all done a nice reading of As You Like It a few days before, but Dinsey didn't remember any plans for that night. Maybe Olive just wanted company. Dinsey had been meaning to spend an evening in the children's room, but hadn't made it down there in months. But Olive surprised her. It's library business, she said, waggling her finger and smiling. Now that was intriguing. For years, whenever the librarians wanted an evening to themselves, they'd disappear into the stacks after supper and would never tell her why. It's library business, was all they ever said. When she was younger, Dinsey had tried to follow them, but it's hard to sneak into a quiet place. She was always caught and given that awful cherry tea. The next thing she knew, it was morning. Library business, Dinsey said slowly. And I'm invited? Yes, dear. You're practically all grown up now. It's high time you joined us. Great. Dinsey shrugged as if it were no big deal, trying to hide her excitement. And maybe it wasn't a big deal. Maybe it was a meeting of the Rules Committee, or plans for moving the 340s to the other side of the window again, but what if it was something special? That was both exciting and a little scary. She wiggled her feet into her own slippers and stood up. Olive barely came to her knees. Dinsey touched the old woman's white hair affectionately, remembering when she used to snuggle into the woman's lap. Such a long time ago. A library at night is a still but resonant place. The only lights were the sconces along the walls, and Dinsey could hear the faint echo of each footfall on the stairs down to the foyer. They walked through the shadows of the shelves in the main room, back to the six hundreds, and down the middle stairs to the stacks, footsteps ringing hollowly. The lower level was dark, except for a single caged bulb above the rows of National Geographics, their yellow bindings pale against the gloom. Olive turned to the left. "'Where are we going?' Dinsey asked. It was so odd to be down there with Olive. "'You'll see,' Olive said. Dinsey could practically feel her smiling in the dark. "'You'll see.' She led Dinsey down an aisle of boring municipal reports and stopped at the far end, in front of the door to the janitorial closet set in the stone wall. She pulled a long, old-fashioned brass key from the pocket of her robe and handed it to Dinsey. You open it, dear. The keyhole's a bit high for me. Dinsey stared at the key, at the door, back at the key. She'd been fantasizing about library business since she was little, imagining all sorts of scenarios, none of them involving cleaning supplies. A monthly poker game, a secret tunnel into town where they all went dancing, 
like the Twelve Princesses, or a book group reading forbidden texts. And now they were inviting her in. What a letdown if it was just maintenance. She put the key in the lock. Funny, she said as she turned it. I've always wondered what went on when you... Her voice caught in her throat. The door opened not onto the closet of mops and pails and bottles of pine saw she expected, but onto a small room paneled in wood the color of ancient honey. An oriental rug in rich deep reds lay on the parquet floor, and the room shone with the light of dozens of candles. There were no shelves, no books, just a small fireplace at one end where a log crackled in the hearth. Surprise, Olive said softly. She gently tugged Dinsey inside. All the others were waiting, dressed in flowing robes of different colors. Each of them stood in front of a craftsman rocker, dark wood covered in soft brown leather. Edith stepped forward and took Dinsey's hand. She gave it a gentle squeeze and said under her breath, Don't worry. Then she winked and led Dinsey to an empty rocker. Stand here, she said, and returned to her own seat. Stunned, Dinsey stood, her mouth open, her feelings a kaleidoscope. "'Welcome, dear one,' said Dorothy. "'We'd like you to join us.' Her face was serious, but her eyes were bright, as if she was about to tell a really awful riddle and couldn't wait for the reaction. Dinsey started. That was almost word for word what Olive had said, and it made her nervous— she wasn't sure what was coming, and was even less sure that she was ready. Introductions first, said Dorothy. She closed her eyes and intoned, I am Lexica. I serve the library. Dinsey stared, her eyes wide, and her mind reeling as each of the librarians repeated what was obviously a familiar rite. I am Juvenalia said Olive with a twinkle. I serve the library. Incunabula, said Edith. Sapientia, said Harriet. Ephemera, said Marion. Marginalia, said Ruth. Melvilia, said Blythe, smiling at Dinsey. And I, too, serve the library. And then they were all seated, and all looking up at Dinsey. "'How old are you now, my sweet?' asked Harriet. Dinsey frowned. It wasn't as easy a question as it sounded. Seventeen, she said, after a few seconds. "'Or close enough. No longer a child.' Harriet nodded. There was a touch of sadness in her voice. "'That is why we are here tonight, to ask you to join us.' There was something so solemn in Harriet's voice— that it made Dinsey's stomach knot up. I don't understand, she said slowly. What do you mean? I've been here my whole life, practically. Dorothy shook her head. You have been in the library, but not of the library. Think of it as an apprenticeship. We have nothing more to teach you. So we're asking if you'll take a library name and truly become one of us. There have always been seven to serve the library. Dinsey looked around the room. Won't I be the eighth? She asked. She was curious, but she was also stalling for time. No, dear, said Olive. 
you'll be taking my place. I'm retiring. I can barely reach the second shelves these days, and soon I'll be no bigger than the dictionary. I'm going to put my feet up and sit by the fire and take it easy. I've earned it, she said, with a decisive nod. Here, here, said Blythe, and well done, too. There was a murmur of assent around the room. Dinsey took a deep breath and then another. She looked around the room at the eager faces of the seven librarians, the only mothers she'd ever known. She loved them all, and was about to disappoint them, because she had a secret of her own. She closed her eyes so she wouldn't see their faces at first. "'I can't take your place, Olive,' she said quietly, and heard the tremor in her own voice as she fought back tears." All around her the librarians clucked in surprise. Ruth recovered first. Well, of course not. No one's asking you to replace Olive. We merely... I can't join you, Dinsey repeated. Her voice was just as quiet, but now it was stronger. Not now. But why not, sweetie? That was Blythe, who sounded as if she was about to cry herself. Fireworks! said Dinsey, after a moment. She opened her eyes. Six sixty-two point one. She smiled at Blythe. I know everything about them, but I've never seen any. She looked from face to face again. I've never petted a dog, or ridden a bicycle, or watched the sun rise over the ocean. I want to feel the wind and eat an ice cream cone at a carnival. I want to smell jasmine on a spring night and hear an orchestra. I want... She faltered and then continued. I want the chance to dance with a boy. She turned to Dorothy. You said you have nothing left to teach me. Maybe that's true. I've learned from each of you that there's nothing in the world I can't discover and explore for myself in these books. Except the world, she added in a whisper. She felt her eyes fill with tears. You chose the library. I can't do that without knowing what else there might be. You're leaving? asked Ruth in a choked voice. Dinsey bit her lip and nodded. I'm, well, I've... She'd been practicing these words for days, but they were so much harder than she'd thought. She looked down at her hands, and then Marion rescued her. Dinsey's going to college, she said, just like I did. And you, and you, and you. She pointed a finger at each of the women in the room. We were girls before we were librarians, remember? It's her turn now. But how? Edith asked. Where did... stammered Harriet. I wished on the library, said Dinsey, and it left an application in the unabridged. Marion helped me fill it out. I am in charge of circulation, Marion said. What comes in... What goes out? We found her acceptance letter in the book return last week. But you had no transcripts, said Dorothy practically. Where did you tell them you'd gone to school? Dinsey smiled. That was Marion's idea. We told them I was homeschooled, raised by feral librarians. And so it was that on a bright September morning, for the first time in ages, the heavy oak door of the Carnegie Library swung open. Everyone stood in the doorway, blinking in the sunlight. "'Promise you'll write,' said Blythe, tucking a packet of sweets into the basket on Dinsey's arm. The others nodded. "'Yes, do.' 
I'll try, she said. But you never know how long anything will take around here. She tried to make a joke of it, but she was holding back tears, and her heart was hammering a mile a minute. You will come back, won't you? I can't put off my retirement forever. Olive was perched on top of the circulation desk. To visit, yes. Dinsey leaned over and kissed her cheek. I promise. But to serve? I don't know. I have no idea what I'm going to find out there. She looked out into the forest that surrounded the library. I don't even know if I'll be able to get back in through all that. Take this. It will always get you in, said Marion. She handed Dinsey a small, stiff pasteboard card with a metal plate in one corner, embossed with her name, Dinsey Carnegie. What is it? asked Dinsey. Your library card. There were hugs all around, and tears, and goodbyes. But in the end, the seven librarians stood back and watched her go. Dinsey stepped out into the world as she had come, with a wicker basket and a book of fairy tales, full of hopes and dreams. Episode number 35 was Mike Resnick's Winter Solstice about a backwards-living Merlin. On the board, Zathras said, I really liked this story. I thought at first that it would be a pale reflection of bearing an hourglass. I only had two problems with this story. How could Merlin interact with people if he lives in the opposite direction, and how did he build the legend of Merlin to begin with? This is in my top three podcastle stories, regardless of length, and my favorite Mike Resnick story. And Tazo wrote, My step-grandfather is in the early stages of Alzheimer's, and he's already having trouble recognizing me. This story kind of helped me see how he might be viewing things, desperately worried about remembering things like his grandkids' names. It also gave a wonderfully tragic twist to Merlin, who himself is in the middle of a wonderful tragedy. Kind of funny how Merlin's backwards living locks him very, very firmly in the present, almost horribly so. Dissenter Osakat said, Good intro, but in the service of a story that just annoyed me. On the blog, Bingo Rage wrote, I thought that the Arthur legend had been approached from every direction. Mr. Resnick gave me a new perspective on the story that I hadn't expected, even with the intro. But Vanamond made an interesting point, writing, I wish writers could move away from Alzheimer's just being about memory loss. As the condition progresses, vision, motor control, and even swallowing can be affected. If you've got something to say about this episode or any of the others, come on over to forum.escapeartist.info and give us your two cents. Podcastle is a production of Escape Artists Incorporated and is distributed on a Creative Commons attribution, non-commercial, no derivatives license. Share it, but don't change it or sell it. Our theme music is by Shiva in Exile. You can find them at magnatune.com. You can discuss this episode of Podcastle or nearly anything else on our forums. Just visit forum.escapeartist.info. And if you like science fiction or horror, be sure to visit our sister podcasts, Escape Pod and Pseudopod. And if you enjoyed this episode, tell a friend, or post to your blog about it, or consider donating via the PayPal link on our site. Horace Mann said, A house without books is like a room without windows. (laughs) 